just so you know. Uh, we are have been in a series called The Habits of Grace for several months. Um, we have kind of looked at what the most important thing is to be a people of God's word and then to be a people of God's, and have God's, the way it's talked is you have God's voice in his word, you have his ear in prayer, and then you have his heartbeat in the community of the church. And so we've talked about that for several weeks. We've talked about how to study the Bible, why you should study the Bible, why you need to pray, how you meditate through prayer, how that then um, catapults you into your relationships in the church and outside the church. We talked about baptism, communion, uh, being together in fellowship, accountability. That's always the fun one. And today we want to talk about the purpose of the church. So you've heard the phrase, don't put the cart before the horse. We're actually putting the cart behind the horse where it properly belongs because all those things lead to a church. All those things lead to the mission of the church, which is to make disciples. Um, Jesus doesn't make it difficult for us to figure this out. He gives it to us specifically and in a systematic way. And too often the church has kind of lost that because we get too wrapped up in preferences and styles. And I don't like it. And what's going to happen? And I should be in charge. And we forget the mission that Christ has called us to, which is to make disciples of all nations. So that's what we're going to talk about today. You ready? Strap in, hour and a half minimum. Okay, no, because I got a vacation to get to, so we're getting out of here fast. Still won't stop me, 45 minutes minimum. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the amazing time in worship we've had. Thank you for the people that have come um, to hear your word. Thank you for our kids. They can go back and, um, even as little ones, begin the discipleship process. We pray that you would open their hearts and you would open ours to what your word has for us today. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So we talked last week a little bit. I mentioned it, and then I decided to drive the point home a little more. So we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28. It's when Jesus gives us the Great Commission. This should be pretty familiar to you if you've been in church for any length of time. Um, But I don't know that we've ever put it in a systematic way, and I want to show it to you that way. So I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. So what's happening is Jesus is gone. He's died, he's been buried, he's resurrected, and he's come back, and Matthew records this great commission, where the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So this is after his resurrection. He's going to meet them, and he gives them marching orders. They're going back to Galilee, where he said, that's where I'll be, and he gives them the marching orders for the rest of their faith. Now, this is Pentecost Sunday in the the history of the church. We know the disciples still didn't get it right for at least another 30 days until the Holy Spirit comes. Because even though Jesus gives them this command, he spends time with them, then he leaves, they still don't get it. So we can relate to the disciples because they're as dense in the head as we are often. That sometimes it's put in front of us over and over and over again, and we still don't get it. And then something happens in a moment. Um, And for them, it was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Immediately, Peter preaches. Immediately, the disciples go from being timid to going to the ends of the earth and dying for their faith. Um, Every one of the disciples was martyred. Died in being martyred. Every disciple was martyred. John was martyred. He was just too tough to die. Um, He was boiled alive, was not killed. He was then stuck on an island. You freak us out, stay away from us for a while. And then they let him go. And then he goes back to the church in Ephesus as an elder and eventually dies of old age. But every other disciple went from being a bit timid a bit scared, a bit I'm not sure, to when the Holy Spirit invaded their hearts, they're on fire. And I think that happens a lot for us too. 
we get into a mode of we're just kind of going along with our faith. It's just kind of happening. We're there. We love Jesus. We want to follow him. And then it takes a movement of the Holy Spirit to jumpstart us, to really start living out our faith. And so that's what we're going to see is we get the marching orders from Jesus here. And then it's going to take the, the supernatural Holy Spirit to then take this and tunnel into your heart and then drive you to go share the faith of Christ. So Jesus tells them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus gives us a blueprint of how things are supposed to happen in the church. Gives us the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. It's not to entertain you. It's not to make you feel good about yourself. It's not to show you the seven ways to be a better person. It's none of that. It's that the purpose of the church is to make disciples. Um, And that doesn't happen just in the building. It happens everywhere. And Jesus tells us in the very beginning, all authority in heaven has been given to me. All authority. So when you look up the word all in Greek, it means all. So you don't have to go, well, I don't think that means all. I don't really think you have all authority, Jesus. He's making a very clear stand. All authority has been given to me. I am the ruler and reigning king of all of this. I have all authority. We know from Colossians he's spoken into existence for his glory. We know that he holds everything together by his voice. We know when the end happens in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, is it 19 or 19? When he comes back, it's not going to be this big fight of Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon, and we all get our munitions from our basement and we go fight demons. It's not going to be like that. Jesus shows up on a horse and he speaks. It's all done. The world was created with a word and it's going to end and be recreated with a word. And so he's all powerful, all authority. He has everything. He controls it all. Then he tells us, therefore, Make disciples. Go. Make disciples. Why did he preface it with authority? So you could never say, I don't know, Jesus. I don't think I'm supposed to. He very clearly says, all authority has been given to me. I control your life. I run it. I rule it. I reign over it. I'm in charge of this planet. So go. Therefore, go. It kind of takes you out of the position to say, I'm I'm really not supposed to be involved in that. I'm really not supposed to love my neighbor. I don't like my neighbor. I'm not going to love that one. I'm not going to care about the nations. I'm not going to care about the persecuted church. I'm not going to care about the kingdom of God going outward because I'm I'm quiet. I read that part where it says the gift of evangelism. I I, I don't have that gift, so I'm just going to be quiet. I'm not going to share my... You don't get that option. Jesus is very clearly saying, all authority has been given to me. Your life is mine. Go. Make disciples. Teach them about me. Share the gospel. The grace of God. Go. Make disciples. Now, this is very all-encompassing. It says of all nations. So yes, some of you will be called to go all around the world. My new friends, Leo and Sarah, who are visiting with us, Um, I don't know if they will call me a friend or not. We just met. We don't know each other well enough, but we're friends in ministry, brothers and sisters in Christ. They work with people in India, in the northern part of India, to help the gospel to penetrate the Hindu culture. 
Some of you might be called to go to the ends of the earth. Some of you might be called just to be nice to your neighbor. Not everybody, God doesn't call everybody to go on the mission field. He doesn't call everyone to go. But he does tell you to make disciples. That might be to get on a plane and go around the world for years on end, or it might be to just be kind to your boss who's kind of a jerk. It's all-encompassing. It's a holistic understanding of our faith. You don't get the option of saying, well, you know, I'm just going to make disciples here, but I'm not going to make disciples there. Those of us that have kids, think about the season. You only get 18 years if your kids like go off and get a job. But if they don't, that's a whole other cultural story we'll talk about in America. But you've got about 18 years, and that's it. Then they're going to go off to school, get a job, get out of the house, you're leaving. Or if they're going to be townies and go to school, they stay home to save me money. At least that's my plan. And they got to get a job. You've got 18 years to mold them. You have disciple-making happening in your home with your children. So you have a very close, right next to you, everyday opportunity and then you also have the opportunity all over this place like think about the community of just laramie we have an influx of thirteen thousand students ish every year come through this place what a prime opportunity to disciple the leaders of the next generation the leaders of tomorrow and they're all over the world because they don't stay in laramie so they scatter all over the place we have a unique opportunity here think about all the professors the people that work the the people that have lived here forever, they have a stability. This town, people move in and out constantly. And some of you have been here almost your whole lives. Think of the rock-solid stability that you bring to a church community because you've, you've seen this wave happen. You don't get too fired up about things. Yeah, the university's going nuts. It's, but, you know, that's Wyoming. That's what I hear from the locals. The ones that aren't local are, oh, man, what's going to... And all the locals are like, you know, it's, gonna, it's, it's happened. It's, it'll be fine. It'll be all right. Right? So even though if you're a, you've never really branched out or ever left Laramie, you have a rock-solid ability to help disciple people who are a little freaked out. It has a million different facets in how it looks. Discipleship isn't, and making disciples, isn't just a one-rote program. It's you living your life with others, sharing the truth of Jesus, sharing the gospel. And it often takes words. You have to actually speak the truth of Jesus to them. And then once, you, once they have a saving relationship with Christ, once they've become a Christian, as you've helped to share the gospel with them, then Jesus tells us to baptize them. We don't baptize them, then share the gospel. It's not biblical. They understand who Jesus is. They repent of their sin. They understand a faith in Christ as a gift from God. They embrace it, they walk in it, and then we as a church, you as church people in a small house church, in your home, in a small group, or church as a whole, come together and say, we see the fruit of Christ in you. You made a faith commitment to him. We're now going to, you're going to obey by following in the waters of baptism. And when you're baptized, that's a mark and a seal of the entire church saying, we trust this one. We believe in this one. This one's now part of the family, part of the crew, part of our church. There's now mutual levels of accountability and church discipline. We're going to live life together. We're going to lift you up in leadership and expect you to serve. And then we're also going to bring you into the fold and help you and encourage you. And Right? 
several years, um, Amber and I volunteered when I was teaching high school and she was a dental hygienist. We, we took our vacation time. Well, I had summers off, so it was all summer, but her vacation time, really. And we went on, it was called Beach Week. And so we would get on a charter bus and we would ride for 14 hours with high school and middle school kids to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And there's some fond memories of that camp. Like I grew, it was the first time I ever preached. It was the second year we went. The first, the youth pastor had faith and trust in me when he probably shouldn't have, but he did. And I, the first sermon I ever taught or, or preached was on the talents, the parable of the talents. Man, I butchered it. I went back and looked at my notes a few years ago. It was awful. Um, not quite blasphemous, but was not biblically accurate. <laughs> not even close. It's like, wow, thankfully, like there's grace from God because I hope his word rang supreme because it was bad. And every year we had this thing would happen where um, it was, and, and youth culture's kind of changed with youth ministry. It's still there a little bit, but you had like the big drama thing. And then kids would come forward, and, it'd be, and it was a Baptist church, so you, you recorded everything. And so you had the first-time decisions. Everybody wrote their names down. And then you had the people who rededicated their lives, which is the rededication of the rededication of the rededication happened like every summer, which was like, we need to stop this. This shouldn't be happening. And then you had the ones called to ministry. And this list would get put together. And you'd put it on the wall at the church or roll it on a screen of all the names. And everybody was just, yes. And nobody doubted those decisions. No one doubts their salvation, no one. But it really isn't sealed and confirmed and you're really in the family until the baptism happened. It doesn't mean they weren't saved. Not at all. We celebrated those moments. But then as they grew and matured and they were baptized in front of the whole church, or maybe it was in the ocean in front of the youth group, or maybe it was in a youth event. When they were baptized, it's a, it's a whole different marker. It's a place of commitment. And people showed up for it and celebrated it. And so, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't baptize them in the name of First Christian Church. We don't baptize them in the name of whatever pastor's doing it. Like one of my greatest joys is when either a husband baptizes his wife or a dad baptizes his child or mom and dad are in the waters together or, right? Like I know some churches where the pastor will go, no, that's my job. I want all that glory. They don't say it that way, but it's kind of how I feel like it's happening. What a beautiful picture when you have everybody involved. Like what a beautiful picture when a mom and a dad have raised and discipled their kids and then they're part of the baptism. Instead of saying, hey, we've done all this work. Um, hey, Mike, would you baptize them? Like, I, I gladly will. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful story. We see all the disciples throughout the New Testament baptizing in all kinds. They didn't wait till they got to the synagogue on Sunday. They just did it. And so Jesus says that's one of the seals, baptism. It's not required upon salvation. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. But it's not an option either. He's saying to be part of the family and the community, you're going to be baptized. It's a public display of what's already happened in you. So you see this progression. All authority, go, share the gospel, then baptize them. It means bring them into the family. Like if you think about it, like I know we all like each other in this room, but would we all talk to each other very much or have like relationships outside of the church? Some of us would and some of us wouldn't. 
But what a beautiful picture of complete inclusivity in the church that says, if you've been baptized, you're part of the family. Like this piece of scripture alone rips apart any ethnocentric or racist ideal that you would ever think. Now, I know the Bible, especially in the United States and around the world, has been twisted at times. Um, but every time it's been twisted to support racism or support ethnocentrism, I can show you a person who doesn't know the scriptures. I can show you churches that were fighting against it. Like we all talk about how the church supported slavery in this country 150 years ago. No one talks about all the pastors that were preaching against it. And so we, you bring them into the family. Baptism is our inclusion place. doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter the color of your skin, your occupation. It doesn't matter. If you put your faith and trust in Christ and baptized, you're part of this family. You're part of the Christian family around the world. And then Jesus says, once that happens, then teach them. Teach them all that I've commanded you. Baptize them, teach them. How many times was this done backwards in your life? <laughs> Apparently Chuck's. How many times, how many times is it done backwards where it's, Follow this rule. Here it is. Do this because we're going to give you moral understanding and rules to get you to faith. Now, I'm not saying you don't put morality. I mean, in our house, before our kids had a relationship with Christ, we didn't let them just beat each other. Like, that's not right. You don't treat each other like that. They're Christian moral ideals that are given, but they're, you're not really going to understand the scriptures until you have a relationship with Christ and you have a community to help you in that pattern. And so Jesus, that's why he tells them, Teach them to observe the scriptures. When? After they're saved, they've been baptized, so they have a community of support. Then we teach you all that the word of God has in it. And you do it together as a family, in a community. You don't do it alone. That's so difficult. It's so difficult. And then Jesus tells us, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Why do you think he said that? He's giving you the blueprint. I'm in charge. All authority. Go. Preach. Make disciples. Baptize. Teach them. <coughs> which takes forever. Like none of us are done being taught. And then he says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. He's telling you he's got your back. I'm in this. I'm with you. Why are you afraid? <coughs> Why are you scared? Why do you feel timid? Why are you worried about this? I got your back. I'll be with you. When you're in that difficult conversation with someone about their faith, he's with you. We're in that difficult relationship with someone, and you're trying to show them that maybe they're not living the right way, there's something going on that the Bible doesn't line up with, he's with you. He's saying, until I come back, I'm in this. I'm in this. <coughs> Which is great, because I've been putting so many situations where I didn't know what to do. I had no clue. But there have been other great situations where I felt like it was right. Like you guys, don't sell yourself short. When you hear disciple making, I've, I've sat in the same seat, not as a pastor, heard someone say you should be making disciples and going, I don't know how to do that. Am I supposed to like <clears throat> get a Bible study? What am I supposed to do? And then as someone opened my eyes to a holistic understanding of discipleship, like your whole life, I started seeing where those things had happened in my past. Um, one of my greatest regrets is for about four and a half years of teaching high school, I didn't see all of my students as a, a place to share the gospel. 
And the last year and a half of my teaching, I did. But the first four years, I and I was really hard on myself for a lot of that time. Then you look back, and I, I just, and this comes fresh to my mind because um, a young man that I kind of helped and took under my wing, his dad passed away when he was about seven years old, seven or nine, and he was in high school, and he was kind of the quiet kid that nobody really paid attention to, and I was his history teacher. And so I saw him reading a couple books, and I was asking him, like, hey, what are you reading? Because he would never pay attention to my talking. You just read a book. I mean, who would do that? I'm so captivating. Who would do that? And so he, he would uh, just read, and I started talking to him, and then kind of took him under my wing a little bit and started talking, encouraging him. Um, he started coming by the house and hanging out and asking some questions. And then when he joined AmeriCorps, he went to Colorado. He met his future wife. And they served in AmeriCorps in, this, in the Mountain West for a while. And he asked me to do, he was my, the first wedding I ever officiated was he and his wife. <coughs> and that never would have happened if I hadn't given him some of my time and some of my heart as a high school kid. And so there's parts of me that's like, ah, oh, I just wasted all that time. But there's all little, there's kids like that all over. That I wasn't real intentional about, okay, today we need to open up the Gospel of John. I need to give you some scripture. But I gave them my heart. And I think sometimes when we think of discipleship, it's just getting them through a process of Bible rote memory, and that's not true. It's when you share your heart and your empathy and you share who you are with people, people grow from that. Now the prayer is that eventually you would have an opportunity to talk of things of faith. Sometimes you only get three or four minutes with a person. Sometimes you get years with them. But we're called to share the truth with everybody who would listen. To make disciples. And that's what we want our church to be. We want to be a disciple-making church. But here's a benefit that you get. I stole this quote from the book. We will only go, go so deep with Jesus until we start yearning to reach out. Sometimes you get a little stagnant in your faith. Or maybe I'm the only one. Who the Bible study every day becomes just a drill. It's hard, things are going on, it's a rough work cycle, rough kid cycle, stuff's happening. And so you go to do your daily devotion, it becomes duty instead of delight. The hope is it would be delight. To feast on God's word, amazing. But sometimes it's just duty. Sometimes the prayer time, it becomes a checkbox. Well, I prayed today, did my prayer tonight, well, I prayed at that one meal, I drove around and prayed. It's not a delight. So the hope and the goal of our lives is that we would long for extended times with the Father. That we'd want to speak to him, we want to hear him speak to us. But the reality is, we get a little stagnant. And I found that one of those the realities that bounces off that is when you start to pour yourself out, you grow yourself. Too often we think of service as, well, it's my duty. I'm, I'm a Christian, I go to this church, Supposed to serve, so I do it. And so you begrudgingly serve. And that's when you get people that shouldn't be in our children's ministry serving in our children's ministry. Well, Mike said we need more volunteers. I'm going to go volunteer. I hate kids and they hate me. But I'm serving the Lord. That's not helpful for anyone. No one is asking you to do that. But instead, think about the times when you've stepped out of your own comfort zone to serve someone, how you've been blessed by it. 
to a person. Everybody that goes on some kind of a short-term mission trip or they go serve in some capacity, they end up coming back saying, yeah, we did these things, but man, I was moved. Man, I was blessed. Man, I saw God move in some crazy ways. I feel a new energy. I feel a new excitement. For me, it changed me completely. The first short-term mission trip I ever went on was in 2004. I was teaching high school. I think it was 2004. It might have been before that. Anyway, teaching high school, um, and I had a historian's view of missions in the world. Uh, to me, Amer- missions, especially Western missions, and especially from America, was all about going into other nations and trying to make them little Americans. And I wanted no part of it. I wanted zero to do with that. I'm like, why would I do that? Like, yeah, it's great that we would share the gospel, but I don't know that everybody needs to be, you know, I think capitalism works pretty well, but I think you can be a nation without it and still find Jesus. And so I I had some real bad, I had a huge bad, I just didn't like it. I would know part of it. And then my friend calls me up, who was a youth pastor, and we served together. He's like, hey, what do you, can you get a week off in like two weeks? I Yes, I mean, I've got some personal time saved up. Why? You got a passport? Yeah. Well, you want to go to Honduras for free? And do what? I just help build a school. Well, and, and if I'm being completely honest, he talked me into it because I like to hang out with him. We're good friends. But it was also a stamp on my passport. And I'd only been to Jamaica. And so I first go into it going, I'll go serve, I'll help build this school, because that's what you should do. You should go build schools, that's great. But I am not going to be part of making good little Americans. I'm not going to do it. And so I put this wall up. And about the third day in, like I, my job was to run the wet saw on the concrete cutter, which is fun when it's, there's a pool of water around you and the frayed electrical cables laying in the water. Can we stop and have some safety checks here, please? Um, we built a school, and there was this little girl named um, Lily. And she melted me. Like, if I'd had the opportunity to adopt her, I would have. And then I started hearing in this orphanage, that's not a possibility. Our goal is not to bring people back to America. Our goal is to encourage and educate and train these little kids in how to live a life for Christ and share the gospel in the workplace, and we're going to send them all back into Honduras. That's our whole goal, is just to equip them, rescue them from where they're at, and then send them into their communities to make an impact in the entire nation of Honduras. Like, oh, I can get behind that. That I can get behind that. And I was sold out. Went there three times, still going places all over the world, just trying to pour into people in their place, in their country, to then impact their nation. Like the goal isn't, but I had a completely different view. And it was only until I stepped out of my comfort zone to go serve. I served in my local church, and I thought, well, I'll go serve overseas. I'm not really sure about this, but I'm going to go serve. Sometimes serving breaks your heart and changes you in ways you've never understood. Does that mean you should all go overseas next week? No. But if you feel a little stale, you're feeling a little distant from God, maybe you need to put yourself out there a little bit. Maybe you just serve in some capacity. Serve your neighbor. Serve the people that you work with. Start praying for them. Make some meals for people. Invite people into your home. It starts out really small. And it can turn into something huge in this community. In the last several years, well, okay, the last 80 years, in this country, 
We've become very selfish in the United States. It's not a new phenomena, but it's got compacted, sorry, it's been compounded exponentially in the last 60 years. Most of you know who John Dewey is, don't you? Dewey Decimal System, do you know that at least? Okay, good. I mean, your librarians did this much work, that's good. You know the Dewey Decimal System. So John Dewey was an educational philosopher in the United States, writing around the turn of the century, and his entire goal, um, if you read all of his stuff, I'm not giving you an educational history lesson, if you read all of his stuff, was that the school should be the central education um, place of our nation, essentially removing the parent from the equation to an extent. That, and his goal was because parents, we, can, we can't have a different, we don't know what's going to happen with parenting because we can't really control that, but we can have a systematic place, the school, and everyone will, will benefit from that. But he was also a humanist. And so he helped write the Humanist Manifesto. Um, there is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there is no need for the props of traditional religion, with dogma now excluded. That immutable truth is dead and buried. There is no room for fixed and natural law or permanent moral absolutes. So at the core of even the humanist model towards education kind of said, hey, parents, let us handle this. Which in some areas is good, right? Because some parents, well, we'll just leave it there. Some places that can be really good. But for the whole scope and range, it kind of took out any idea of discipleship, any idea of my job as a parent or our job as a society is to raise up our little ones, to raise up our children to become fully adults. And instead it became, let's extend adolescence until 18, and now we think extended adolescence happens to 29 in this country. And so we're going to keep going, we're going to just, just keep them around, and we'll, just, we'll take care of them. Because Johnny can't have any hard days, he can't have any decisions to make, he can't like, have a callus on his hand, we've got to keep him safe. Right? And so this flows through, and then you have all these things happen historically in our country, post-World War II, and eventually what we have is we have a nation of consumers, don't we? Instead of producers. We have a nation of consumers instead of people who produce. Which is anti-biblical. The Bible from the very beginning, the mandate is put on Adam and Eve to steward all that God has made, to have dominion over it, to use it for fruitful expansion of the kingdom, to grow, and then even after the fall. There's a continued blessing from God through agriculture, through hard work, through, right? We see it over and over again. When Paul says how you grow as a disciple, you do the work of a farmer and a soldier. He doesn't say do the work of a video game player. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say sit around and just wait for it to come. He doesn't say that. It's, it's work. Like discipleship, he, he talks about it's running a race. Train your body for, for feats of strength. Like go for it. It's discipline. And instead, we've kind of lost that. So think how that permeates even into the church. Well, I like First Christian, but I'm not, I don't really like Mike. His sermons don't really get to me. Like, I, I need at least three more jokes per sermon, and I'm there. He doesn't, he doesn't wear, he has a beard, but he doesn't dress hipster enough. And if he would just tight roll his jeans into boots that aren't really boots, but still, then I would go. He should shop at American Eagle more, and then I'd find him more relevant to my life. And then I'll go. Or the band. Well, gosh, like some weeks they have a drummer, some weeks they don't. Some weeks they have a full band, and sometimes the piano hasn't been played in like two weeks. 
gosh, I need to go find a church because I crave piano music. We see it over and over and over again. That we become consumers. And we bring that even into our churches. And instead we should be producers. Like what am I producing? Am I making a disciple? Am I helping? Am I raising my children? Am I encouraging my coworkers? What am I doing with my time and my talent and my treasure? How am I producing more for the kingdom? And it looks different in all of our lives. But if we just had some simple mind shift changes back to a biblical understanding that we weren't consuming, instead we're producing. What am I going to produce? What, am I, what did I do today for the kingdom? Instead of, God, what are you going to do for me today? I came to you in prayer for half an hour and you didn't give me an answer. I should be getting my answers. Instead, what are you doing for the kingdom to grow? What are you doing for your neighbor? You put God first, you love your neighbor as yourself. You go make disciples. It's not rocket science. It's clear biblical understanding of what Christ has called us to. So what it looks like to kind of close... Disciple-making challenges us to be holistic Christians, that everything you have is his, and you use it all for his glory. From your car, to your house, to your job, your finances, the food on your table, the free time that you have, everything is his, all authority. So you live a life that's holistically like that. You don't want to live a double-minded life. Um, I, I don't know that... I mean, we all have things we hide or things we try to put walls up with, um, but it's... I find it a compliment when people tell me, and we're having a conversation, joking around, and they find out I'm a pastor, like, really? You're a pastor? I'm like, that's a compliment for me. Because they have an idea in their head of someone who's going to act one way on Sunday and act a whole different way on Monday. And I have the same irreverent traits on Sunday morning that you guys get to hear in my sermon sometimes as I do all week long. Things I'm not necessarily proud of, but it's it's who I am, and we should all be that way. Now, we're all a little duplicitous, if we're honest. We hide things. But if we're honest with each other, and we can be honest with our lives, that's what people will be drawn to. That when you're in pain, you say it out loud. You don't just put a little bow on it and go, Jesus is good, even though I just suffered a great tragedy, and I'm dying inside, but he's good. You be honest with it. Like, read the Psalms. Half her laments and half her praises. David says, you're awesome, God. Why have you done this to me? It's okay. God can take it. We need to live a life that's completely his. Secondly, it makes us more aware of our sin. Those of you that are married know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. When you're put with someone for that length of time, for that much time, your sins become glaringly apparent. Because they tell you about them. They help you see them. We also have the aptitude to hurt the people we love the most with some of the most deepest wounds that they've ever been hurt by. And so it becomes quite apparent in relationship, as spouses, but then even in great friendships. Like, you know what happens. If you have this bright idea one day, hey, let's all get together and go on vacation together. Let's all take the kids, and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, they parent differently than me. I'm going to go crazy, right? Or you, let's go on a trip together. It's like all the guys, let's get together. And then very quickly, there'll be one person or one moment, at least in your brain, you might not say it out loud, you'll be like, ugh. 
if he says that same joke one more time, right? It exposes our own sin because real quick, you just had a judgmental thought, a person you claim to be a great friend, you've just thought ill of them, and then you're going to feel bad about it later. You're like, oh, why did I, man, I'm a jerk. He's been a great friend to me. Why would I even do that? Your sins are exposed the more you're in relationship with other people, the more you're in community with other people. And what's beautiful about the church is that we know that and we keep forgiving you anyway. And it's going to cause you to want to be better. So as you're making disciples, their sins are brought out, your sins are brought out, and everybody forgives each other and we grow together as a church. And then lastly... Disciple-making teaches us to be completely reliant upon Jesus. You don't have the answers. You don't have them all. Without Christ, you can't forgive quickly. Without Christ, you can't look over people's differences. Without Christ, you're just selfish and you want it your way. But with Christ, the more you lean on him, like think about in the last several weeks, like what we've kind of dealt with as a church with some loss in this community, there's been some loss um, in your own lives? Like, how do you deal with all that without leaning on Christ? You can't. It presses you closer to his heart. But even when you're doing, even if it's discipleship, even if it's like just a coffee, and someone asks you a random question, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You press in. When I, in, a few weeks ago when I was in Kathmandu, we, were, we went through the book of Galatians. And it comes out, there was... a one of the pastors has been dealing with, in his um, village, his area of, of Nepal, he's been dealing with um, people coming to him saying that they're demon-possessed. And he's trying to differentiate whether the people need medical treatment or they're really demon-possessed. So we're in Galatians talking about false teachers, and there were some false teachers around their neighborhood saying that they could cure them. And so he, he came to me and he asked, how do I exercise a demon myself so God gets the glory and not this witch doctor? I've never exercised a demon. So I couldn't just say, oh, I don't know. We had to sit and think, and I had to pray, and I said, hey, let me, I have some ideas, and here's how I would approach it, but let me get back to you. And so I went back to our room that night, and like, I'm on Logos. I'm like, oh, what's going on? Like, I know what I want to say, but I don't want to say it wrong because we got a translator, and I don't want him to get, I don't want him to understand the Bible incorrectly. Like, I was stressing over this. I think I had the right intellectual thoughts and the right ideas and how you'd approach it and, you know, there is a different, and how do you, but I just prayed. At the end of the night, I just prayed, go, Jesus, you have to help me with this. I don't have the words to say. I'm afraid I'm going to mess this up and it's going to be, you know, six more months before any other people come in for more training. I don't want to, I don't want to mess this up. And so when you get full of yourself, then you think you don't need Jesus. But when you have people near you that need help from you, it's going to cause you to lean on him. It's going to cause you to pray more than you ever prayed before. I bet most parents in this room, their prayer lives for their children slowly increased the closer to teenage years their children got. Some of you are shaking your head and smiling. Because when they're little and precious and they're around the house, you can keep a... But when you like driver's license, dating things start happening, you're probably driven to pray for your kids more, even more so than you did when they were six. 
because you get to a place where you don't you don't have authority over this. You can't control them. So what do you do? You pray. And it's exactly what happens in discipling relationships. When you're making disciples, you pray. You lean on Jesus more than anybody else. So we see a clear biblical mandate as a church that we're called to make disciples. It's Jesus telling us what to do. But we also get the benefit of growing. Like, I don't want you to think of discipleship as just gutting it out until they finally move away. Or they finally get cured, or whatever happens. It's a lifelong relationship. I mean, to this day, people that I don't talk to every day, if they called me up and they had an influence in my life, it would be a great joy to hear their voice. And I bet if we passed a microphone around here to the person, there's somebody in your life that helped you grow in your faith or grow in life, grow in stature. It happens sometime. That could be an emergency. So you have, you have the opportunity and you know those people in your life. You could be that person. Like I can name teachers that had a massive impact on me in high school. That at a time when I was lost and my parents were divorced, they had a huge impact on me. I can name certain spiritual fathers in my life that helped show me truths about Jesus I never knew before. But I don't know a single person at the end of the day, if I pass the microphone around, you would say, yeah, it was that great day when I was given an extra $1,000. Man, I love money. But I don't think you would say that. I think you would comment about the legacy that's been given to you and people in your lives. If I walked around and said, what's the most significant points of your life that you've ever had? The most significant. You wouldn't say, man, when I got that third car, I love that car. I'd sell my soul for that car. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. The most influential times in your life have had somebody coming alongside you, helping you, showing you, shaping you, molding you, and sending you out. And isn't that the legacy we want to leave as a church? Not that we had a super cool band. You had quite the expositor as a preacher. That's not the legacy we want to leave. We want to leave behind that we have relationships because of us and because of our time that are going to continue on for generations to come. And the kingdom of God will expand to all nations as he commanded. That's a beautiful story. You might not make it into the history book, but you'll be in the Lamb's book of life and he'll know your name for eternity. That's pretty powerful. I'll take that over a headline any day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time we have together in your word. And especially for the specific call that we're to make disciples. And it looks different for all of us. Some of us like to work with little kids and some of us can't stand them. Some of us are called to be kind of minor theologians in people's lives, helping them see the truth of scripture. And some of us are just called to um, be there, which is probably the harder of the two. That we're to be there in the pain and the joy, the discomfort, we're to help. So I pray, Lord, you'll start revealing to each one of us the area that we're called in in the command of discipleship. Some of us are called to be teachers and some of us aren't. Some of us are called to do lots of things in the idea of spiritual gifts, but the one thing's for certain, we're all called to make disciples. So help us to have eyes that can see the people around us, the need, the hope and truth of the gospel, and help us to also see the people that need encouragement in their growth. There's nothing else that we should be wanting to spend our lives for ultimately. 
we do a lot of things in our lives, and those are good blessings from you. But ultimately, the cause is to make the kingdom expand. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.